One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. All right, and we are live for another episode of Spies and Lies. How are you doing today, Dad? I'm okay, I suppose, yes. <laughs> it's always the same answer. Well, what do you want me to say? I feel lousy. Maybe. Do you feel lousy? No, I feel the same. You feel the same. Yeah. Okay. Lousy. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Spies and Lies, an espionage podcast co-hosted by me, Omri Rose, who spent his childhood living undercover thanks to his dear old dad and co-host, Jason, a retired former spymaster of one of the top intelligence agencies in the world. Without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Spy, Wizard, Sith, Christopher Lee. The knife stabs into his back as a sharp intake of breath sounds and cut. Peter Jackson, director of the Lord of the Rings movies, halts the scene, approaching Christopher Lee, who's dressed as the wizard Saruman, having just acted being stabbed in the back. Reaching the tall, imposing figure of Christopher Lee, Peter Jackson discusses the next take, exploring the idea of giving a louder cry of anguish during the stabbing, to which Christopher Lee replies, Have you any idea what kind of noise happens when somebody's stabbed in the back? Because I do. See, it's not, ah, like that. It's, <gasps> because the breath is driven out of your body. The crew looks on, mesmerized, as Christopher Lee continues to describe clandestine activities during World War II, making it apparent to all that he has expert knowledge of exactly the noise made when a person is stabbed. And as the cameras rolled once more, no loud cries were heard. Only. <gasps> so, Christopher Lee. What do you think of this fine gentleman, Sir Christopher Lee? Well, if you look into his history, you see it's a very complex pedigree that takes you to different eras, different times. A lot of burden on your shoulders if you're coming from that kind of family. Yeah, the, the lineage of his family and also the life he lived was so dramatic outside of even his film roles. He lived quite an extraordinary life, you could say, for I, sure. Yes, he did. He in, did. in one of the most fascinating time periods of, of recent history, certainly. Uh, and he was privy to some rather extraordinary events, as we will come to see. So who exactly was Sir Christopher Lee? Well, he is best known as an actor in roles such as Saruman in Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Count Dooku in the Star Wars movies, Dracula in the Hammer Horror films, and so many more roles throughout his very extensive career. But he wasn't just an actor. 
He was also a heavy metal singer, if you can believe, an opera singer, a horror icon, a three-time Guinness record holder, a polyglot multilinguist, and he had a royal bloodline, being a descendant of Emperor Charlemagne. He was a World War II veteran, and of course, a spy. But in the world of Cloak and Daggers, how much can we truly know about the truth of his espionage activities? Well, let's find out. First of all, a quick little overview of the greatest hits of his spying activities as he presented them. At 17, at the outbreak of World War II, he volunteered to join the Finnish army to fight in the Winter War. Later, in 1939, he volunteered for the Royal Air Force, the RAF. He didn't fly any missions due to a discovery of his bad eyesight and damaged optic nerve, but instead he joined the RAF intelligence as an officer. He also served with the Long Range Desert Group, the LRDG, which were special forces in North Africa. He was behind the enemy lines, doing reconnaissance and intelligence gathering, moving from base to base, sabotaging Luftwaffe planes and airfields along the way. He also worked with the PPA, the number one demolition squadron, known as Popsky's Private Army. Later in the war, he served with the Special Operations Executive, the SOE, British Espionage, doing sabotage and reconnaissance. And at the war's end, Christopher Lee became a Nazi hunter, working with the Central Registry of War Criminals and Security Suspects, with the very long acronym CROCAS, helping track down and prosecute war criminals. He is quoted as saying, I've seen many men die right in front of me, so many in fact that I've become almost hardened to it. Having seen the worst that human beings can do to each other, the results of torture, mutilation, and seeing someone blown to pieces by a bomb, you develop a kind of shell. But you had to. You had to. Otherwise, we would never have won. Quite a remarkable life he wrote about having and said to have had and whispered to have had and rumored to have had, wouldn't you say? Yes, and all this and to the age of 25. All and that, yeah, before the age of 25, even before his acting career. Yes, so he did so much in a short time. Um, very interesting, very intense. Very, very is, intense. What happens afterwards? Does he use it? Does he take the experience that he went and use it again for other things? Let us see. And what was the extent of his activities truly, which we will... See, because unfortunately, the validity of his claims have come into question recently. Not that he did the things themselves, but just exactly how much of the things he did. As in, he certainly caught a fish, but the fish itself may not have been quite as large, and that desperate battle to capture it might not have been quite as desperate. He was probably around most of the things he was talking about, so he knew what he was talking about. Not necessarily he did everything that he said or claimed he did, but that's not the point in this case. I mean, it gives us a chance to look at a, what, a, what a kind of a life you can have, even not being in the main, the main character in, in the, the places he was, but just having a taste of everything gives you a lot of history and a lot of depth as a person. I like how you put that as the main character in the story. And I think we'll find that in his army military service, not army service, air force service, but in his military service, he saw himself as the main character in this movie, you could say. And perhaps more accurately, he was the supporting character. But we'll come to that because we must start at the beginning, which was the 27th of May in 1922, London, where Christopher Lee 
was born. His father was a decorated army lieutenant colonel of the 60th Rifle Corps who fought in the Boer War and in World War I. He was actually decorated for his services. And his mother was a countess from an Italian noble family, thus his lineage to Charlemagne, which they could trace back. Alas, his parents' marriage was not to last, and they separated when he was four and divorced when he was six. And with his mother, he moved to Switzerland, where he lived for two years, before returning to London, where his mother married a banker, the uncle, in fact, of Ian Fleming. And if that name sounds familiar, that's because Ian Fleming was the author of James Bond, who became Christopher Lee's step-cousin. And now, it is said that Ian Fleming, himself a veteran of World War II and the espionage service, may have based the character of Bond partially on Christopher Lee himself. Dun-dun-dun. What do you think of that statement? It's interesting to consider it. It makes intrigued about his character and the way he saw himself. And I think later in his life, he, he took, it for, took it as an advantage, but it, it helped him further some of his things he wanted to promote. He was very charming. Yes, he was. Perhaps he lied. <laughs> Perhaps. That's why we call it Spies and Lies. Yes, exactly. Interestingly, he also spent two years in Switzerland as a child, you know, between four and six, which I find interesting because Switzerland is a language hub, has many, many languages in its, its own borders, you know, French, German, Swiss German. And at that age, you soak up languages. And I wonder if that may have influenced his exposure to languages and how he became a polyglot later in life. And as we'll see, he was a man of the world in many, many, many ways, which certainly would help for a man of mystery, wouldn't you say? Yes, a man that has so many languages, it's, 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 it's a, you have to take advantage of it. And now, connections. Yes, and having his mother being from a royal family, you could say from, the, from a very old family in Italy, and obviously Italian was important. So you know Italian, and then you know other languages because it comes with the education of that kind of class that you get. So the question is, where do you fit in? And that, I think when you look at his history, where, where does he find himself fitting in? And he's always trying to fit into something. Right. And that's interesting as well. Eventually, he would be able to speak, um, well, he studied Greek and Latin, and eventually he was able to speak English, French, German, Italian, and Spanish, with also a passing knowledge of Swedish, Russian, and Greek. So, he would I mean, do great spying in China. Uh, excellent spy in China. Exactly. Thankfully for him, at that time period, China was not particularly a hub of espionage. Okay. After having moved back to London, still as a child, he actually met some rather interesting characters. In fact, he met a Russian prince, Prince Yusupov, and the Grand Duke Dmitry Pavlovich. These two characters may not be familiar to you, but the person that their story is tied with might be. For, you see, those two fine Russian gentlemen are said to have been the assassins of Rasputin, the mystic of Russia. It just so happened that Christopher Lee met them when he was a child and later in his life got the opportunity to play Rasputin. Rasputin's daughter claiming that Christopher Lee had the mad eyes to pull it off. A lovely little uh, anecdote there, wouldn't you say? Yes, yes, Rasputin was a nice guy. We should do an episode on Rasputin, maybe, and the assassination. Um, Rather mysterious uh, circumstances there. Yeah, you have the eyes to go with it. Oh, thank you, thank you. Thankfully, it's a podcast and you can't see them. Now, Christopher Lee went to prestigious schools, but he missed out on going to Eton for not having strong enough math skills. Do, do strong math skills prevent you from uh, or help you become uh, an agent? Is well, that something tested for? Yes, yeah, so for writing receipts and calculating money. You and your receipts. 
Always the receipts. It is very important after all. It is. He was very good in languages, as I said. He was also very athletic, if not a superstar sportsman. However, he was quite good in one particular field, which was fencing, where he excelled. He did play lots of other sports, cricket, hockey, football, rugby, boxing, all those things. So he was a physically active man, well-connected, well-spoken. I mean, if I was recruiting, he seemed like a, a good person to recruit. Thus far, anyway. There was one thing that was rather interesting about his childhood, though, is that he didn't like parades and weapons training, and he would often play dead during mock battles. Kind of interesting. So, with all that, didn't like war and combat, but then inevitably found himself in the thick of it. Happens. I think in some ways, it makes a better warrior or spy or whatever if you don't revel in the, in the activities, no? Wouldn't you say? I don't know. You wouldn't know? No, I don't. I mean, I won't consider him a spy. It's a different category of things he did. No, I'm not talking about him specifically, but you don't want someone necessarily so gung-ho about killing and doing all no, these you different don't. things. you don't. Not for the, well, some certain operations you might want, but when you're looking at the, the, the whole experience of being someone working in this field, you want someone who's a little bit more calm. At 17, with one year left at his schooling, Sadly, he did not get the chance to finish because his stepfather was bankrupt and they couldn't afford the schooling anymore. His mother and stepfather separated, and at that time, Christopher Lee needed to get a job. But alas, there were no opportunities as everyone was off for summer holidays. So he was sent off to visit his older sister, Zandra, who was in the French Riviera on holiday at the time. Stopping in Paris on his way there, Christopher Lee happened to witness a rather unique event. A world event, in fact. He witnessed the last public execution performed in France, the execution of Eugene Weidman, which was conducted by guillotine. That same device that chopped off so many royal heads during Napoleon's revolution. If you don't know what a guillotine is, it's uh, basically a blade that drops down on someone's neck when they're held in like a stocks and then it just chops it right off. Now, uh, there was hysteria surrounding the event, a scandal because there was so much hysteria, that the French government banned all public executions going forward. So Christopher Lee had witnessed the last public execution conducted in France. Adding to his list of rather unique life experiences. When he did finally arrive in the French Riviera, he stayed among exiled princely families and other nobility. And after his sister went home, and with World War II on the brink of happening in Europe, he was sent back to London as well for safety rather than staying in the mainland. Now, I find all this interesting because, again, if you're building an ideal spy, right, someone well-connected who can schmooze with the, the different people of Europe, and of course, at that time, that would have been more the echelons involved, he's a good candidate so far, wouldn't you say? Not necessarily. Explain. Too well-known? Yes. But what about Casanova? It's different times. When you say about spying, there's, there's spying and there's bringing intelligence and there's playing different roles. He could not play, as an actor, he played roles. But when you're, if you're supposed to get close to people, he, he couldn't hide who he was, his background. He couldn't play something that he wasn't him. Not at least at that moment that we know of. So it was always him being himself. So it's a bit different. You can't, to being an intelligent person, working intelligence doesn't mean you're a spy. Of course. And, there's, and that's a different definition. So I wouldn't call him a spy because he didn't spy. He worked with intelligence people, 
and he did intelligence work, but it doesn't mean he stood behind enemy lines and there's nothing to the, in his biography to show that he did. But um, So you're firmly on the camp that he was not the spy he perhaps hinted at being. I don't think he ever said he was a spy. I think he said he worked in intelligence. Working in intelligence doesn't mean you're a spy. I'll put it in a different way. The way he phrased and hinted at his life story and in his biography, autobiography, it indicates certain types of activities that he took part in. And you think that certainly the units that he was attached to took part in those things, but maybe he himself did not? No, I think he did take part in them, but he didn't have to go into enemy territory to do it. He was hunting people who were hiding. He was working in areas that maybe were taken over already by the Allied forces. He he's never claimed that he worked behind enemy lines. Well, we'll get to exactly what he claimed a little bit more and some of the nuances of this, but... Um, Again, he had a stellar, proven military record. Um, I tell you that I, I think he worked more undercover and more played different characters in his movies, bringing that side of him that he wanted maybe to have in the, his real life. Because remember, he finished when he was twenty-five. So yeah. how many years could he have done it? So, but in his career as, a, as an actor, he had the chance to play the roles he might have wanted to play when he was actually in duty. Sure, you say how many years could he have done it, but we, if we look at Virginia Hall from season yes, one, I know. same I amount know. of time that she had to do in World War II, and afterwards, you remember she was sidelined and was basically hugging a desk. But she, he couldn't have done what she did. Why not? He, because, first of all, he was very tall. Yes, but we've already seen in yes, but uh, two episodes uh, back in the Farewell dossier well, it, how we had the very tall uh, Frenchman, right, who no one could suspect the tall Frenchman, well, right? Well, in this case, it was a bit different. He couldn't pretend to be someone else when everybody knew him and he came from a certain pedigree. Yeah, I don't think we mentioned Christopher Lee was six foot um, five, some say six foot six. So, yeah. It was very tall. And, very and, tall. And Especially then. Him, <laughs> yes. And, and it was... Uh, very, he has a very distinguished look. So, and voice, you, of course. He, so he, he, you can't play too many roles. It, it was never said that he did something different than actually being who he was. I mean, it was never claimed that he impersonated someone and exactly. went somewhere and, you know. Yes. But then James Bond never did either. He always introduces himself as Bond, James Bond. Well, that's one of the problems with James Bond. He, <laughs> he was not, he's not a real spy, is he? No, he isn't. He's inspired by rather he a just few, likes though. to drink uh, martinis and... and, and and never mind. Yes. Uh, anyway, little sidetrack. Let's get on with it because uh, we're about to enter the war. So uh, having come back to London, he worked as an office clerk taking care of mail and running errands. His language skills and administration obviously coming in handy. And then, of course, the war broke out. What war? World War II, which crash course in history. You know, Germany, Nazis, evil, Axis, empire, bad stuff, killing people, Holocaust. If you really don't know what World War II is, you're listening to the wrong podcast, people. Anyway, hope you keep listening even if you don't know what World War II is, and I recommend you educate yourself. There's a lot of stuff you can uh, learn about World War II. Anyway, so World War II broke out. It was 1939, and Christopher Lee enrolled in a military academy and volunteered to fight for the Finnish army, as we said at the top of the episode, against the Soviet Union, because in the beginning, the Soviet Union wasn't exactly sure what side they were on. And uh, this was what was called the Winter War, which lasted three and a half months. He and other British volunteers were kept away from the fighting, and Christopher Lee says they were issued weather gear and posted on guard duty safe from the border. After two weeks, they returned home. Christopher Lee also saying, We went there with a group of friends and said we wanted to help. 
We could shoot pretty well, but couldn't ski. We were thanked for our help, but didn't, of course, get anywhere close to the border. So, that glamorized went and volunteered in the Finnish front and fought. Yes, it's true, but not much fighting. No, two weeks. We can continue. We don't have to waste too much time. No, no, but but I, I want to touch on this just for a second because I don't think Christopher Lee ever lied, but he left the mystery open and said things in a certain way that British, were open to interpretation. British soldiers did, British people did go to Finland. Yes. British soldiers or British people did try and help, but if you can't ski Correct. in the winter, what are you doing there? Correct. So it's not really much help. But there are other things he could have done, and he did, but I think he just wants to prove as a 17-year-old he had something else in mind to do something different, and that's that's part of his mystique. Yes. That's more important, I think, in his character. They're willing to try new things and not be afraid and dare. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the characters that is appealing to people who work in this profession. 100%. I was going to kind of do this at the end, but I think we'll maybe try to address this as we go along. So recently, a uh, couple of years recently, uh, journalist and historian Guy Walters and historian Gavin Mortimer, both specialists in military history and the SAS and that whole time period, say that they have found some of what Christopher Lee's insinuated at was not exactly 100% accurate, and that he never served in some of these units that he said, but that he was attached to them, a minor distinction. For instance, what they say of the Finnish war was that around 8,500 UK citizens, as you said, volunteered, but only 200 actually eventually did travel to Finland to take part. But they did that nearly a year apart from when Christopher Lee claimed that he did that. Also, Walters particularly finds it difficult to believe that the Finnish army would have accepted a bunch of schoolboys to fight. I mean, he was 17 at the time. So that's just that particular point. Did he? We don't know. But questions. The fact that maybe he wanted to is enough. From, from my point of view, it shows the character. Absolutely. Absolutely. So he returned to work as an office clerk after that Finnish episode. <laughs> episode. Then he worked as a switchboard operator. And then in March 1941, his father died. Now, Christopher Lee knew that he was going to be enlisted soon. And he decided that instead of waiting to be enlisted and not having a choice of where he was going to go, he decided to volunteer to enlist in the RAF because he didn't want to be in the army like his father was. So maybe a bit of bad blood there or just the stories. But anyway, he wanted the RAF. That was also the new technology, you could say, of the time, you know, airplanes and things. Yes. And so he joined the RAF and trained to be a pilot, but he suffered headaches and blurred vision and eventually had an optic nerve failure and he was never allowed to fly again. So he was initially going to be a fighter. to fly, but not as a pilot. No, I'm he, sure he did fly. Well, fly, yes, but not, uh, not physically fly yes. a plane. Yes. So he almost was a fighter pilot, you know, which would have changed his yes. career dr dramatically if, if he was. Though it's, I find it hard to believe because you always talk about pilots being short, right? Not allowed not to be too tall. But he was a very big guy, you know. Yes. So squeeze into the cockpit. Anyway, he was, Christopher Lee was devastated. But picking himself up, he finally applied to the RAF intelligence and of course was accepted. 
Working for RAF intelligence, he was posted to South Africa, then to the Suez Canal Zone, then Egypt, and finally he was assigned as the intelligence officer of an RAF squadron in the North Africa campaign. He moved between cities with his squadron as they lent air support and performed bombing runs, averaging about five missions a day. Christopher Lee's responsibilities at the time were said to be knowing everything. Quite a, quite a big responsibility to have, to know everything, wouldn't you say? Well, that's, that's what makes it interesting, because his knowledge of languages and his background, they didn't want him to just be in a one specific place. They needed someone. In intelligence, you need someone who sees the big picture. And I think that's why he was able to talk and say he did a lot of things, even in later things he did. It necessarily, not necessarily he had to do them, but he was there when others were doing them, or... I'll, uh, bring the information that allowed others to do things. Yeah, I he, think was that's involved more he was involved in lots involved. of different... And being involved in intelligence work is, is a different kind of work. Yeah. He was almost killed when his squadron's airfield was bombed. And then later, in 1943, when the Axis surrendered in North Africa, Christopher Lee received a promotion and got malaria for the sixth time in under a year. Ouch. He was flown to Carthage for treatment and thankfully made a full recovery. However, when he returned to his squadron, the squadron itself was very restless and frustrated because they had no news about the Eastern Front, no mail, and most importantly, no booze. Unrest turned to mutiny, but our hero, Christopher Lee, is said to have quelled the unrest, stopping the mutiny, and impressing his commanding officers. The record for this comes from Christopher Lee himself, though I am sure the British Army would not have liked to particularly keep a record of a potential mutiny. Thoughts? No. He is a man of the world. He knows he's not just one of the, you know, born in London and went to war. He traveled, he's seen places, he comes from a pedigree of a family. So he's able to, to find a way around the people and he was more mature probably than than the people around him. That made a difference. More worldly, for sure. Yes. Winter 1943, the Allies invaded Italy, and Christopher Lee was moved in an officer swap to work with the Army, where he was attached to the Gurkhas and the 8th Indian Infantry Division. So again, more worldly experiences, lots of different things. The Gurkhas are a famed branch of the British military, fearless and and powerful, and uh, saying you have served with the Gurkhas is uh, uh, quite a pedigree. Where do the Gurkhas come from, Father? From India and Nepal. It's funny you should say Nepal, because you know what Christopher Lee happened to do while on leave during that time? Climb a mountain. He climbed Mount Vesuvius. And three days later, it erupted. What a man of timing. You meet the assassins of Rasputin, you go see the final guillotine execution, you climb Vesuvius before it explodes. He was a time traveler. He just knew where to be in every time. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. Again, Christopher Lee was also almost killed when a plane crashed during takeoff and he tripped over one of its live bombs. Well, you know, he survived to tell the tale, so there you go. In November of 1944, Christopher Lee was promoted to flight lieutenant and posted to Air Force HQ for planning and liaison. He was, of course, very experienced on lots of different fields and he would have been a valuable asset in the logistics and planning aspect of the war. I would say good call to send someone like that there, no? Yes, again, that's what we're talking about, intelligence work. Intelligence is not always the one who brings information but analyzes it and understands what it means. I think that was probably a lot of his strength of getting the information that came in and making sense of it and then sending it out to whoever needs to 
to work according to what the intelligence brings in. That's by itself a very special job in the intelligence world. At some point during this time, he was moved, supposedly, to the SOE, the Special Operations Executive, which we've talked about in the past. This is the precursor to the MI6. His missions there are still classified, and he was involved in conducting espionage, sabotage, and reconnaissance in occupied Europe against the Axis powers. The SOE is more informally called the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. Christopher Lee declined to give more details, but has said... I was attached to the SAS from time to time, but we are forbidden, former, present, or future, to discuss any specific operations. In another time, he said, Let's just say I was in special forces and leave it at that. People can read into that what they like. And people certainly did. Again, he's not expanding on the things. We don't know what he did. And people's imaginations can go wild, right? He's an actor already then. Exactly. In the final months of the war, he joined the Central Registry of War Criminals and Security Suspects. There's that long acronym, the CROCAS, and he hunted Nazi war criminals, saying, We were given dossiers of what they'd done and told to find them, interrogate them as much as we could, and hand them over to the appropriate authority. We saw these concentration camps. Some had been cleaned up. Some had not. Difficult things to see. But uh, there we have him saying that's that's what uh, they did, you know, interrogate, find, all that kind of stuff. So did he do that or no? I would think he did. It makes sense that he would. But was he the guy going and interrogating or was he his, the guy? His knowledge of language and understanding the information and trying to find out where the people were, that's part of the job. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Let's look at some of these controversies that our historians say. As for Christopher Lee's service itself, Gavin Mortimer says that Christopher Lee didn't serve in any of the elite units that he claimed to have served in, but was attached to them, to the SOE and the SAS, as an RAF liaison officer at various times between 1943 and 1945. So he was attached, but did not serve in them. So this is a linguistic kind of dance, you know, so, oh no, if one time... Christopher Lee happened to, in an interview, say, I served in rather than attached to. Most of the times he said, I was attached to, I served with, you know, linguistic details, which, again, he certainly was attached at different points to those units. How much he did when he was with those units, that's difficult to say, right? I look at it from a different angle. If you look at it from his career and the way he went into the Army or the Air Force, basically, he was an Air Force guy. Mm -hmm. So he was... Uh, attached and if here they're looking at 
the records of other units, they won't find him as a member of those units because he wasn't a member of those units. Mm -hmm. But when you are in a time of war, then you need a link between your Air Force and other units. He was probably that link. Now, if you're looking for him, you'll have to look at him in the Air Force. You won't find his name registered somewhere else. Now, when you're there, what is he doing? His briefing, his debriefing, his giving information, his getting information. Is he the pilot? No. But does he give where the mission is? Yes. Is he? Does he interrogate people? Not necessarily, but he might go into the interrogation room right. or speak to the ones who are interrogating. Or if he's looking for Nazis, they need uh, someone to look for them. Now, if you look as well, you got all these medals. And I think you mentioned it, or it's going to be mentioned it's going later to be mentioned on. mentioned in a minute, yeah. Then why did he get these medals? Right. Now, he gets his medals because basically they hunted Nazis that were wanted by some of these governments because of the actions they did. They wouldn't have given it to him if he was just a standby and right. just someone passing by a window and, and, and waving. No, he did things. Was he registered as a member of some of these units? Not necessarily, but that's, that's a, it's a lot more of an administrative logistics situation, but not what he physically did. Right. So I would say he did these, some of these things. He was there, even though the records won't show that he belonged to those units. And why would they when he was a spy? No, no. no not I, know, I know, I know. I'm just... Okay. Speaking of the, the medals, I'll just mention them. By the end of the war, he received commendations for bravery from the British, the Polish, the Czech, and the Yugoslavian governments. So he has the medals to prove it. Right. They wouldn't just given out unless he found a way to tell them that he should. But that's a, a different story. Dark Vader stuff. Okay. So I want to talk about something that relates a little bit more specifically to you, and I'll let you explain it. When you are in the military, not everybody is the fighter. And in many armies around the world, not always the fighters are the ones that avoid being shot at and have to fight. So a lot of times when you are supposedly on the backbench or your logistics or your intelligence or your whatever unit you're in, you might find that you're going in with the front people in the front line and all of a sudden the front line, you find yourself in the front line without even being prepared for it or wasn't supposed to. And then you find yourself involved and engaged in any other activity. So the moment you're in a military unit, no matter what army it is, you never know when you are going to be engaged in a war or a fight or someone trying to attack you or assassinate you or kill you. That's why in you, the military doesn't only arm the people who actually are in the front because there's many more people behind those people who are supplying right. them if it's giving them supplies or intelligence or, or logistics or food or water or anything. These have to be protected and they have to be, have some kind of combat capabilities. And we'll say you're speaking from experience or not? Let's say that this is what armies do. And you have experience of this? Like many more, many others. Yes, we'll leave it at that. That uh, maybe Christopher Lee's role and function in, in the military was a little bit similar to something that you might have uh, understood. I am not uh, taking credit to any of this stuff. No, obviously you're not old enough to have served in World <laughs> War II, but the type of function that maybe he was involved in is perhaps familiar. Let's continue, please. <laughs> okay. So one of the issues that uh, the historians have with Christopher Lee is that they don't like that Christopher Lee is claiming silence and not being allowed to speak about any of his escapades. And they say, nonsense, wartime members of the special forces units are not and never have been prevented from discussing operations. Uh, People who did 
things they don't think are moral or right don't always want to say what they did, number one. Number two, people who haven't done things don't want to be don't want to say that they've done something and then they find out they didn't. So both types, sometimes the best way out of it is not to say much and let the reader decide what they want to believe in it. And that's exactly what Christopher did. Mortimer and his research found in the National Archives in Kew that they did not have an SOE personnel file with Christopher Lee's name on it. Possibly the file was destroyed, or like you said, he was attached as an intelligence person and it wouldn't be in that. As for the Demolition Squad, PPA, Popsky's private army, Roy Patterson, the secretary of Friends of the PPA, said no mention of Christopher Lee was found in the unit's diary from the war. However, Christopher Lee was a member of the Friends of the PPA, but the only proof of his service came from Christopher Lee himself when he said he had visited the unit in Italy in April of 1945. That said, when he joined the Friends of the PPA and became a patron, his membership was never challenged. Again, we can read into that however we like, right? He was around interesting areas and interesting people. That's that for sure. The fact that he was not registered. Yeah. The it's war like is messy, right? It's a thing people move around, mm. you know, even in today's uh, battles, you get moved from one place to another and you don't have a complete record. Exactly. But uh, that's. But I don't. You say, I'm not trying to find in his character that he's not telling the truth. I'm, I, I'm not saying that either. I'm, I'm, I'm just, just trying to explore the different aspects that of this. His life was so interesting, and that that period and that time that he experienced so much, so many things. Absolutely. That allowed him afterwards to play all these parts that he played with conviction. That this is the real. This is he brings something real to the yeah. to the role, and that's I think is the more interesting thing about it. As for the hunting Nazis claims, they say that the way Christopher Lee described it was different to how other people described it. Christopher Lee saying he'd come in contact with a German soldier, interrogate them, and turn them in, but that British personnel in his position didn't participate in field work, only office work. His role was to assemble evidence, not scour the land and countryside for war criminals. Again. Yes, but if someone is captured in a certain city, you go there and, and speak to the people who, uh, who caught him and talk to him, and you want to be there for a week or two or a couple of days to... Uh, to analyze the material and to make exactly. sure that it's right. So and, he, and if he you spoke traveled, the language and yes, you needed it, yes, you'd go look there. at the documents they found or looking for other people and he would know what people they're looking for. So you'd have to ask questions. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that these historians are picking a fight that doesn't need to be picked, to be honest. I think it's safe to say, yeah, he didn't serve in those units, but he served with them or he was attached to them. On some of them he did serve. Yeah. And uh, the fact that these units existed, I think that's an interesting thing. That brings to light of the kind of work that people do that is not always seen by everybody. Yeah. And it's related to intelligence and justice, mostly Justice League, because that's something else these <laughs> days. But it's connected to what was then expected if you had, to, uh, you had to find uh, people that did uh, terrible things, atrocities and war crimes, you wanted to look for them. Were they always delivered to the country that wanted them for their crimes? Sometimes it's better just to get rid of the person. True, true. Like a stab in the back. <clears throat> all in all, none deny that Christopher Lee was an intelligence officer for the RAF during the war. Yes. He briefed and debriefed pilots, he decoded German ciphers, and liaisoned with other units, including all of the ones that we've mentioned thus far. Correct. Well, if you're with a unit and the unit needs to move through whatever it needs to move, you're not going to sit behind in the empty camp. You move with them, you do things with them. So, you know, who knows? Asked at a press junket by a reporter of his military exploits, 
Christopher Lee replied, Can you keep a secret? The reporter said, Yes. So can I. And that is Christopher Lee's military service. Yes, a beautiful answer. I was going to end with all of his medals and things, but since we jumped the gun on that, what do you think of his military service? I think it was, um, if you look at what he wanted to do when he was a 17-year-old who his stepfather ran out of money, went bankrupt, couldn't continue his education. In those days, to be, for him, not to finish his education, coming from the pedigree of family years. Not to go to Eden, not to finish the education. It it means he already felt that he needed to do something something and to be, and do something daring and something different. So he's looking for himself. He's looking to see what he can do. And uh, he was apparently had the, I would say, the, the feeling that he has to live on the edge. And this allowed him to live a little bit on the edge. So if you're going to battlefields, trying to go to be the Air Force, then joining the RAF, uh, the intelligence corps, and then hunting Nazis and other stuff. So it gave him the thrill he needed. But he didn't want to do that. And after he finished, I mean, he could have gone in and joined an intelligence organization and done other things, but that wasn't his passion. He was looking, he was looking for himself, and that's why he went and did other things and used the skills he got from his military time to other things. And what did he do? Well, I will, I will say that he's quoted as saying, When the Second World War finished, I was in my early 20s, and already I had seen enough horror to last me a lifetime. I'd seen dreadful, dreadful things without saying a word. Seeing horror depicted on film doesn't affect me much. Quote about film, but, you know, it's relevant to what we're talking about here. He didn't want to continue in that line of work, quite rightfully. In 1946, he returned from the war and was lost, unable to think of going back to the office frame of mind. As it happened, a conversation with his cousin, who was a diplomat, suggested that he became an actor. Though initially, Christopher Lee was told that he was too tall at a meter 96. Christopher Lee saying... I was told I was too tall to be an actor. That's a quite fatuous remark to make. It's like saying you're too short to play the piano. I thought, right, I'll show you. And show he did. His career progressed slowly initially, but in 1952, he had a breakout and began playing a string of roles leading to work with Hammer Films, famous for its horror films, where he played Frankenstein and then Dracula, which he made famous, playing it ten times over the course of his career. Other notable roles came with The Wicker Man and, of course, James Bond in The Man with the Golden Gun, playing assassin Francisco Scaramanga. Bond is said, as we have mentioned, to have been inspired by Christopher Lee himself. Reminding you that Ian Fleming, the author of Bond, was his step-cousin. To add more intrigue to his already intrigue-filled life, in the late 1950s, he was engaged to a Swedish countess he met at a nightclub, and he needed royal permission from the King of Sweden for marriage. He was investigated by private detectives and needed references before being allowed to marry, which he got. Shortly before the marriage, however, Christopher Lee called it off because he felt she deserved better than being pitched into the disheveled world of an actor. Yes, yes. Yes, yes, the disheveled world of an actor. Ugh. Shame. Shame, shame. Lucky for him, in 1960, he was introduced to Danish painter and former model Bridget Kronk, and they were soon engaged and married, having a daughter together. In 1977, he moved to Hollywood, where he lived for 10 years, but eventually became disillusioned and moved back to London. He said of Hollywood that, There is one element that suppresses everything else, that you are very conscious of, fear. You can smell it. 
A heightened sense of smell for a spy? Is that useful, father? I wouldn't know. <laughs> Later notable roles included the mad scientist in Gremlins 2 and the work he is most proud of as Jinnah in 1998, the founder of Pakistan. In 2001, he also appeared as Saruman in Lord of the Rings, and he dreamt of playing Gandalf for years as he was a huge Lord of the Rings fan, having read the book once a year ever since he first read it. He even, in fact, met Tolkien by chance at a pub the Eagle and Child pub, and was given Tolkien's blessing to play Gandalf. However, when Lord of the Rings was eventually made, he was a little bit too old and physically impaired to do the uh, horseback riding and extreme stunts and stuff. Extreme, but other stunt work that was needed. Now, interestingly, this, this whole chance encounter with Tolkien, I wonder how chance it might have been. You know, he's an intelligence officer. He's obsessed with Lord of the Rings. He reads it once a year. He probably was there a long time, many times before Tolkien actually went That's to. That's what I'm saying. He probably Good. figured out at one point that Tolkien was going to be there. He knows this area, whatever, and made sure that... Maybe. That's, that's my, my thought. There. Good. Christopher Lee has said that... I was always fascinated by fairy stories, fantasy, you know, demons, necromancers, gods and goddesses, everything that is out of our kin and out of our everyday world. I was always interested in enchantment and magicians, and still am. Dun dun dun. He was a big fantasy guy. He also, in 2002, appeared in Star Wars as Count Dooku in Episode 2, where he reprised again in Episode 3 and in voice work and all those other things. More roles, The Hobbit, collaborations with Tim Burton, tons of stuff. Aside from acting, he also sang in movies, such as The Wicker Man. And he had an interest in symphonic heavy metal, of all things. His family did, of course, also have operatic ties, but he liked the heavy metal rockin' stuff, because a lot of heavy metal is actually inspired by fantasy things, with titles like The Magic of the Wizard's Dream and From Chaos to Eternity. He, in fact, released his first full heavy metal album in 2010 at 88 years old. The album was titled Charlemagne by the Sword and the Cross. Charlemagne being his ancestor, if we remember. And that won the Spirit of Metal Award in 2010 from the Metal Hammer Golden God Ceremony. Later, his song, Jingle Hell, entered the Billboard Hot 100 at number 22, and Christopher Lee became the second oldest living performer to enter the charts at 91 and a half years old. Then, with media attention, it rose to number 18, and he became the oldest person to have a top 20 hit on the charts. Amazing. Incredible. His third EP was released in May of 2014 called Metal Night, which celebrated his 92nd birthday, and his fourth EP was released in December of 2014. In addition to all this, Lee also had an interest in the occult, but he cautioned against occult practices, saying that he met people who claimed to be Satanists, who claimed to be involved with black magic, and he also said, I warn you, I warn all of you, never, never, never. You will not only lose your mind you lose your soul. In 2015, shortly after celebrating his 93rd birthday, Christopher Lee died of respiratory problems and heart failure. His wife was by his side. Having won numerous awards for acting, including a BAFTA, he was also knighted by the Queen in 2001. He was appointed commander of the Venerable Order of St. John. That's the Knights Hospitallers. That's the Crusader Order. He got knighted by the French, and he had many, many, many other awards, even beating out Kevin Bacon as being the best connected person in the business. Also in 2008, he was on a commemorative UK postage stamp with him as Count Dracula, of particular interest to you, Mr. Stamp Collector. So if you have any stamps, you know, you can, you can send us 
stamps because my dad loves stamps. Especially on passports. <laughs> but you say that part of your stamp collecting you attribute to your knowledge of, of the world and history, right? Correct. You want to expand on that or just give a one-word answer? That was it. <laughs> okay, great. Finally, he entered the Guinness Book of World Records in 2007 for the most on-screen credits then. He also holds the record for the lar- he also holds the record for the tallest leading actor, which he later shared with Vince Vaughn, and the most on-screen sword fights than any other actor in history. Whew. A lot of stuff. Yes. He was a man of many, many talents and lives. But he didn't know maths. He knew maths. He just... Uh, there were things he knew better. So he was placed 11 to get into Eton, and the top 10 got the highest scholarship, so he was out by one. And so the, the next group got a lesser scholarship, which the stepfather couldn't. So it's not like he didn't know maths. He just didn't know it better than 10 other kids. Okay. Of the upper echelons of British society. Okay. So what do you make of him? Amazing life. Incredible life. Yes. I mean, I mean, I wish many I hats. Knew, yes, I mean, now when you see his films, you, 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 more, you can appreciate more of the character and the personality that's behind it. And what, what sort of experience he brings to that world. Of, of actually doing things. He wasn't just an actor. He actually did some of these things, lived a, a life, lived through times where you don't have any people like this anymore that actually are still active. So yes, a very interesting uh, character. No one, no doubt about it. Good spy material? It comes back to being a spy or intelligence. I think he was a great intelligence officer. I don't think... It, spy material is a different quality. He had qualities, could be a good spy, but... He did other things. So if after the war he came to MI6 and wanted to pursue that field, do you think they would have taken him? I think at that time they would take people who have uh, experience and languages. They would have taken him. But it's, there's, um, we don't know how he worked in with other people. We don't know Acting how he Acting is worked. a collaborative medium. He seemed to work quite well with other people. Well, if you say so. But it's, it's a... It's a different kind of, of work. I'm just saying that if you're asking me if he would have been a good spy, I don't know because he didn't work as a spy. Would he have been a good analyst, good researcher, a good man in the field? He probably he had a lot of good characters that made him an interesting person to be to have around, to have in your side. Because he wasn't afraid to take decisions. He wasn't afraid to live on the edge. He wasn't afraid to, to put himself out there. And you want people like that. And yes, if you look at the... You don't have people with that quality anymore and you look at all his uh, background from historical background and his connection life and, and, and if you look at all the places all the coincidences that went through his life you'll say okay this is a guy that things happen around him that are important you look for people that luck comes around them and these things happen around them he knows how to be in the right places at the, the right, right time. time right and to get out of it to tell the also, story yeah and to live a long life. So there's a lot of qualities there that you want for your people. So you would hire him? Uh, yes, but it depends <laughs> on what kind of job. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, I look at him and I look at Casanova, okay? Obviously completely different time periods, but I think there are some similarities in the two stories, not in the sleeping around and everything, but in the, in the espionage aspect of it. Casanova also grew up around later when he was adopted by the, you know, the wealthy guy around the kind of aristocratic world and everything was well known by those circles. And when I asked you about Casanova, you were like, yes, absolutely. Because, because the difference between him and Casanova, Casanova played different parts 
He never, he did, he, he, he wasn't always himself. When he went to the pub and said he was someone else, a captain or something else, when he went to meet other people, he didn't say, I'm Casanova from Italy and I, I am doing things and this and this. He was playing a part and getting the information because of the part. We didn't see in this story him playing someone beside himself, what I said in the beginning. Well, we don't have documentation. We don't it. have documentation, but it looks to me like he was who he was and he didn't always perform, not like in the acting, that he was different names and different places and different things. But we don't know. So I can only go on what, what we know. And uh, mm -hmm. so that's what I, I can comment on that. Okay. How much can people say? How much do they say? We touched on this a little bit, but... When you know a lot of things, you're afraid to say things you're not supposed to say. When you know very little, sometimes you want to say what you know because you want them to think you know much more than that. So there's always the balance between, do I want to say something so that people will take me seriously or think I did something serious? Or if I get, if I only know very little and I get caught because oh, that's all I know, then... So sometimes it's better just to keep quiet. It makes mm -hmm. it easier. And then from time to time to throw a remark and that's it. So bask in the mystery. Yeah. There's this old saying, you know, better to remain shut and appear an idiot than to open your mouth and confirm it. Exactly. So that's why I'll be quiet now. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, you know, when you are dealing with potentially dangerous information, even it's quote unquote expired dangerous ex information, but no one else has talked about it yet. It's, it's difficult to be the first because you don't know why no one else has talked about it. You know, I'm kind of talking in a, in a broad sense, but... If I'm looking in, about the things he did, he, the information he got was immediately used into action. That means movement of people, movement of, uh, of units, looking for some people who are fugitives, getting information, deciphering it, and then acting at it, if it's on it, if it's an air force, if it's an air raid, or if it's sending troops to do something. So it's a different kind of, of work you're doing. It's it's very intensive. Does it, yes, I, so I know when some is it. I know something now and doesn't have any meaning. Two weeks afterwards, after it happened, that I know someone moved from one place to another. Okay, at the time, it's very very important. But afterwards, okay, so it's very time consuming. So the ability to get information, analyze it, and then execute it is an art in the world of, of intelligence, and that's very important. And you, not a lot of agencies actually understand the art of not only collecting, but understanding what you're collecting and and responding to it. It's a different, it's two different, it's completely different things. Well, today also, I think, added to that difficulty is we're inundated with information. So it's knowing which information to act upon and which is to take seriously and which to ignore, right? Right. You know, in the past, you got much less information and sometimes had to act with only a few pieces of the puzzle. Now it's like you have five complete puzzle pieces, like all the puzzle pieces in, in front of you, and you have to act based on all those five different complete sets of puzzles separated in pieces. Does that make sense in my metaphor? Yes, but a lot today, in today's world, of course, I can't compare it to what we're talking about those days. Most of the information you get is things that are current and going to happen. And we're not historians of intelligence history. Right, and it's technological and it's, stuff. And, right. So what you do with information about someone who, that's, you're, that's you're interested in is moving from one place to another, or there's a shipment of, of uh, weapons, 
or whatever, something else you're looking in and you find out there's something going to happen, do you just register it, look into it, or you actually do something about it? That is the art today of what you do with information that you get. And there's so much information out there, you have to understand what is good information and what is a lot of noise. So it's, it's, it does make it easier just to have a lot of information. Sometimes too much information as well, you, you don't really see the real stuff. It's mm. covered up with a lot of other things. Right. And only when it actually happens, you have the information, but you didn't act on it, like September 11. Okay, if you, that's the only information you had, you would act. But you had so much other information around there, so it just gets lost. Yeah. So it's difficult. It's a difficult world. It's the, the problem of hindsight is like, wait, you had the information that September 11 was going to happen? How come you didn't act? Well, you know, if you have the information and you've had it for five years that there's going to be an attack... And every time it doesn't happen, the boy who cried wolf. Right. It's you difficult. Know, it's difficult to know when the information is actually real. If you take the metaphor of the boy who cried wolf, and let's expand on it, there's a shepherd with his sheep, and he sees the wolf, and it's approaching the sheep. And he cries, wolf, wolf, wolf. And the wolf doesn't attack, and the people run, but it still approached the sheep. And then it goes back. Oh, what did you do? Why'd you call us? And then again, and again, and again, and again, and again and then the wolf doesn't attack each time, and the people stop coming, then the wolf comes, why didn't you say, well, I've been calling, but the wolf was waiting. The wolf is more clever than the, than the guy that calls the, calls the shots. You know, at the end of the day, it's, it's the problem of initiative, right? When you're the wolf, it's you're your the, on the offense, you're on right. the initiative, and you have that ability, that advantage, you know? So it's hard, it's hard to play defense. You know, there's that yeah. old, old, old adage of like uh, the best defense is a strong offense, correct, and vice versa. But you know, really, it's not. Really, it's the best defense is a strong offense. There's the whole myth of like gunslingers in all the Hollywood stuff where they're standing for the the shoot, shootout and the duel, and the guy draws his gun and the other guy acts quick and reflex and all that kind of stuff. Well, you know, initiative. You know, you want that early strike. You want the first move. Right. It's uh, interesting. <laughs> we kind of snowballed into some other things there, but... Yes, it's current to actually to the news that's happening today around the world. Well, we're, we won't talking, go into it. we're talking around certain subjects, so... Back to our good friend Christopher Lee. We will end, I think we've uh, discussed it well, with uh, some rather interesting quotes that uh, he's said to have said. I wasn't a spy. I'd have been spotted in five seconds. Yes, I was an intelligence but that covered a multitude of things. If I had any deadly secrets, I wouldn't still be alive. And I will end, truly end, with words from his song, Rhapsody, The Magic of the Wizard's Dream. I know which is my fate, bond to Arian's old tale. Moonshine in this eternal night, Angels are calling from divine lost crystal realms, riding from heaven for the magic of the wizard's dream. This was Spies and Lies. Thanks for listening. And remember, not every wizard is a spy. Not every wizard is a spy. Spies and Lies is a Grumpy Golem production with original scoring and mastering by Julian Dussault. 
If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to share with your friends and leave a comment or review wherever you listen from. If you have any questions or subjects you'd like for my father and I to cover, drop us a message and we'll do our best to get back to you. Until next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.